all day. Oh, Christmas ghost. I'd love to meet you one day, even if you might be gross. I don't know, I've never met a ghost. Especially not one that likes Christmas the most. So how about it? Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. I'm sure I can speak for some of you when I say that so far this has been a bitch of a holiday. Massive head cold. Thought it was allergies, but it lasted way too long and went to my chest. Travel right before Christmas. Gambling debts came due. I didn't even get to eat tamales on Christmas Day because I felt so crappy. And to top it all off, it's been downright warm here around Chicago for the last few days. I think that's probably the most offensive thing of all. Anyway, that's why this is late. I tried to get our annual ghost story out before Christmas Eve so we could all have one like you're traditionally supposed to. But you know what? Maybe weird Christmas means you get to do things all a little different from the tradition. So now you can have your ghost story during the real 12 days of Christmas. We're going all the way to Epiphany, baby, because that just gives me more time to get these shows out this year. I had 10 planned to get out before Christmas, but as usual, I waited too late, and then life happened. Besides, I know I'm an American, but so is Trump, so I think it's time to change up some of our traditions a bit. And I'll start by getting you your ghost story just in time for New Year's Eve. It'll probably be scarier if you're drunk anyway. The 12 days of Christmas actually start on Christmas anyway, and they end on January 6th, which is both Epiphany and Three Kings Day. I may not get all the rest of them done by then, but I'll do my damnedest. So for those of you new to the show, for the last two years, we've done one episode with a scary story, because it's an old English tradition to read a ghost story on Christmas Eve. We did one by H.P. Lovecraft, which was awesome, and one by Algernon Blackwood, who is one of my favorite weird writers. I keep saying we, by the way, because I don't read the whole thing. I asked for volunteers from listeners who want to help, and just as always, tons of folks stepped up to help me out. I still read some of it because it's fun, and I have such a naturally beautiful voice that you'd hate me if I didn't share it more. But also, you know, community sharing, fun, crap like that. And if you want to get in on it next year, send me a note. I'm always looking for readers. But so far, we've only done writers who aren't really directly associated with that whole traditional Christmas ghost story tradition. So this year, I figured we'd go right back to the roots and pick up on one of, if not the most classic English ghost story writer, M.R. James. And I figured we'd also do a story that was particularly English by having some parts that Americans just won't get. So we're going to read the story of a disappearance and an appearance. And one of the things that makes this story so wonderfully creepy is that it has a traditional English puppet show called a Punch and Judy show. Now, Americans, don't freak out. I know how we get about things beyond the wall, you know, or across the ocean, whatever metaphors are hard, but I got some help making this one feel familiar to you. Before we get to the story, I talked to a real, living, breathing Brit. Jim Moon of the Hypnagoria podcast was kind enough to talk to me about the Christmas ghost story tradition and M.R. James, but also fill us in on Punch and Judy. Hypnagoria, by the way, is a wonderful show about horror and weird fiction and media. He reads a bunch of stories by classic ghost and weird writers and talks about the background. It's just a great podcast all around with a massive back catalog. I've become a huge fan, even of the shows that aren't about Christmas ghost stories, but he's got plenty of those too. So to start off, I asked Jim to tell us a bit about this man who, along with Dickens, may be most responsible for the whole Christmas ghost story thing. He was actually uh, a don at uh, Cambridge College and then later provost of Eton School, um, where he actually had been a schoolboy himself. Uh, He was born in 1862 on the 1st of August, which, uh, if you know your pagan calendar, is Lammas. 
I know it because it's my birthday as well, coincidentally, which is perhaps <laughs> why I'm so obsessed with James. Um, but he was a son of a clergyman. He went to a boarding school, Temple Grove, which served as a setting for the uh, one of his tales, a school story. Uh, he then went and studied at Eton, uh, did his degree at King's College, Cambridge, which is uh, every Christmas has a very famous carol service, uh, Carols from Kings, which was actually a, a service uh, largely devised by um, a, a friend of James's father. Uh, he was a good friend of another ghost story writer, E.F. Benson, and E.F. Benson's father kind of invented the traditional carol service. Um, <laughs> so there's all sorts of weird Christmas connections. But James, uh, he was a member of a society at Cambridge called the Chit Chat Society, where people would present papers and uh, write, read stories to each other. Uh, E.F. Benson and uh, several other uh, Victorian writers are all members of this. And uh, James loved, always loved ghost stories, and he tried his hand and wrote a few, and he read them at the Chit Chat Society. And we know kind of some of his first stories, like Lost Hearts, A Whistle I Come to You, A School Story, uh, were all uh, first read um, at the Chit Chat Society at the Christmas meetings. His stories became something of an annual event, um, and often he'd present them at other times during the year as well. This is one of the great myths about James, that he always wrote ghost stories for Christmas. He just wrote them when he had spare time. He was a, he was a busy man being an Oxford, Cambridge Don. He was a, a famous biblical scholar, an authority on um, a medieval apocrypha, and uh, a man who never stopped doing things. <laughs> but yes, he, uh, his friends all really, really liked his ghost stories, and uh, so several of his friends were inspired to write their own, including E.F. Benson and his two brothers, A.C. and R.H. Benson, and uh, another chap called E.G. Swain. Uh, and quite a few others was, you know, started writing ghost stories because of James, more or less. And they sort of um, persuaded James to actually start having his stories published. And he was very uh, reticent at first because he consider himself to be you know uh, he was a don he was an academic he was a serious medieval you know historian and theologian stories were just something he did in his you know in his spare time like uh, crossword puzzles <laughs> but um he eventually relented and there he had his first stories published in 1895 in a few magazines and then they went down so well in 1904 he had his first collection of ghost stories published and uh, three other volumes would follow through the course of his life and uh, he passed away quite peacefully uh, in 1936 uh, but he influenced a whole generation of ghost story writers and he's sort of largely considered to be kind of you know the master <laughs> of the modern sort of ghost story and indeed there is kind of um what they called the James Gang, a whole like family tree of writers who have been uh, inspired down several generations directly by M.R. James. I mean, currently, right to the present day, there's a sort of British horror novelist, Ramsey Campbell and uh, Adam mm -hmm. Neville are both huge fans of M.R. James, as is uh, Susan Hill, who wrote The Woman in Black. Mm -hmm. But uh, James, it's often said what people know about other than writing his ghost stories, that he read them at Christmas and... Um, it was a famous sort of treat that he'd often, if he hadn't written a new story, he would often read an, read an old one to a select gathering, either when he was at Cambridge or later at Eton. Uh, and these were kind of, you know, you're very honoured to get a visit and, you know, to hear the master, you know, perform <laughs> one of his own ghost stories. And apparently he, he did really enjoy performing. He would, you know, uh, he'd do all the voices and everything. And I find when you read um, James on the page, you start reading out aloud Suddenly, the stories actually really come to life because the very much he wrote them to read aloud to perform, um, which is why I think the prose is so lovely and clear and 
kind of why they're so immediate and have a sort of they're in the of their time but quite timeless um but in sort of britain in the 1960s uh, dr jonathan miller uh, another famous actually uh, oxbridge scholar something of a polymath he um adapted a whistle and i'll come to you my lad one of james's most famous ghost stories as a little sort of tv play and uh, this actually went out in the in the middle of summer but a young director called Lawrence Gordon Clark saw it and thought that was amazing. And he um, badgered the BBC to let him do another one for Christmas because he felt that was the appropriate time. And this resulted in one of the most strangest TV series ever because he only <laughs> had one episode per year and it ran throughout the 1970s. It just called A Ghost Story for Christmas. And he did a whole string of really top-notch uh adaptations of mr james and then towards the end they also did a couple of uh, other authors they said they did the signalman by uh, charles dickens as well and that series is actually where you'll if you just search for james that comes up almost just as much as a lot of his stories now it got so popular it seems well that's it they're they're, they're hugely iconic i mean they've been i think uh, probably almost as influential as the stories themselves because uh, lawrence gordon clark was a uh, quite an incredible director who could do brilliant cinematography for not much money <laughs> and he influenced you know a whole slew of uh you know other uh tv makers and directors and and you know those uh, uh you know short series he did throughout the 70s they've been pretty much steadily repeated through, uh, you know down the decades and uh it was a fallow patch around in in the 1990s where you didn't see them but they but they said really sort of come back into vogue almost uh, in the 2000s. And um, generally now the BBC are actually adding to the canon and doing new modern ones. And so every Christmas, usually late night, they're repeating quite a few of the old ones and building up to showing a new one often on Christmas Eve. So I'm obviously American and the idea of ghost stories at Christmas just has never been a big thing over here. But I know you've done a whole series or a show on where ghost stories, that tradition came from in the UK. And I talked a little bit about it last year, but what's the short explanation for that? Um, well, the uh, a lot of people say this tradition started with James, and that isn't true. Um, James was very much uh, inspired and I very much had a huge love of Charles Dickens. And Charles Dickens loved ghost stories. And... Um, Charles Dickens, as well as being a writer and an author, what a lot of people don't know is that he was actually an editor and he managed several magazines and periodicals. I mean, any kind of writing, he did journalism as well as sort of books with, that we remember him for. And when he was editing uh, magazines, particularly um, uh, all, all the year round, um, for the Christmas editions of those magazines, he'd, always, he'd write a ghost story and sort of get all his other writers' friends and to write ghost stories as well. And ghost stories were very popular in uh, Victorian times and a lot of, you know, great writers who you don't normally associate with the ghost story, like Henry James, Edith Wharton um, or E. Nesbitt, or they all on H.G. Wells all wrote ghost stories and mainly for to be published at Christmas in these magazines. Now, Dickens, he had this connection with Christmas and ghost stories because that was one of the traditional uh, entertainments he grew up with. At Christmas, it wasn't something he invented. It was something that's very traditional. And um, if you sort of, as I have in a Christmas special I did a couple of years ago, if you trace back through literature, you start finding these references to what were commonly called winter stories. And these were stories you told at Christmas, 
and they were usually creepy ghost stories, but they could be more fantastical as well of tales of um, witches and wizards and brave knights. And uh, I got it, I traced it back right past through the English Civil War, the 1600s, right back to sort of um, the end of the 14th century, where there's a very, very early work of English literature, kind of one of the first that's almost in modern English, the Ballad of Gawain, the Green Knight. Just a quick interruption to say that in the next episode, we're going to be talking about that exact poem and some of the other medieval traditions that go along with Christmas. But back to Jim. And in that, you have King Arthur uh, at Christmas hearing stories at his court when the Green Knight comes in and offers him a challenge. And actually, the story of this mysterious Green Knight and the challenge, that is a Christmas ghost story in a medieval vein. Mm-hmm. And that's as far as I've been able to take it. <laughs> but after that, <laughs> once you get past the, the 1400s, people stop writing stuff down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, too. I mean, Shakespeare has that late play, A Winner's Tale, which has the, the sort of magical element to it, especially towards the end. And um, yeah, so that's and it was already presented as if, you know, yeah, we know that A Winner's Tale is supposed to be a kind of mysterious, romantic, you know, magic mm-hmm. field kind of tale. So, yeah. yeah. And there's a James connection there as well. Because uh, the young prince in A Winter's Tale actually does stop to say and say, let's have a a tale for winter. I know one. There was a man who dwelt by a churchyard, but then um, soldiers rushed in and he ends up getting arrested. So we never hear the story. But M.R. James um, wrote a story called There Was a Man Dwelt by a Churchyard, in which (laughs) he imagined and made a good educated guess at what old classic ghost story the prince was about to tell. (laughs) that's wonderful (laughs) now the one we're going to read that everyone's about to listen to is called the story of a disappearance and an appearance and i think it's wonderfully creepy um especially because of some a a dream sequence that happens but then also there's a puppet show again that americans aren't going to know maybe as much about but it's a punch and judy show but that's a very traditional british form of entertainment would you say a little bit for my poor listeners who don't know what that is and and where it comes from just so they can kind of be prepared for that yep. when it shows no problem right the punch and judy show um is one of um several theatrical traditions that comes out of the italian uh comedia uh dell'arte uh which was kind of this sort of loose set of sort of characters and sketches and conventions which gave us the piero clown uh, Columbine, Pantaloon, Harlequin, and a lot of these kind of really kind of, you know, iconic, like, you know, theatrical archetypes, really. Now, theatre, obviously, back in the day was massively popular. However, not everyone could afford to pay actors. And um, there was a huge craze, particularly for this um, Italian, what they used to call in England, the Harlequinade. So people started doing it with puppets instead. And the first Punch and Judy shows were done with marionettes. Um, but as the Italian originals have their own sort of set stories, but a very English story evolved around one of the characters, Punchinello, who was shortened to be Mr. Punch. It's, uh, it sounds horrendous because we show this to children, but the plot is <laughs> there is Mr. Punch. He's married to Judy. Um, they have a baby, which Mr. Punch is uh, left in charge of. Um, the baby won't stop crying, so he either throws it into a sausage machine or beats it to death with a stick or throws it out of the window. Judy comes back, tells him off and hits him, so he bashes her over the head and kills her. Then a policeman comes and he batters him, and Punch actually will goes through the entire play and pretty much batters anyone 
he encounters, <laughs> though he's often taunted by either a ghost or a clown called Joey, or sometimes Grimaldi, who kind of um, seeks to trip him, up, trip him up. And it normally ends with Punch about to be hung and the devil coming to get him. But Punch, of course, batters the devil and wins and gets away with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, I mean, it sounds when you put it baldly, it sounds absolutely horrendous. But it is actually very funny because it is just ridiculous slapstick. Um, as I said, they went from marionettes and string puppets to glove puppets because basically it was quite hard to get the puppets to knock seven bells out of each other without <laughs> tangling the strings. <laughs> and traditionally, the Punch and Judy show is done by one man who uh, is officially called a professor. That is what you call if you're a qualified Punch and Judy man. You are professor such and such. And they have their own kind of little booth, which is like a tall sort of tent, often in sort of striped and colorful materials. At the top, there is a stage. And, you know, the puppeteer, or sorry, the professor, stands inside the booth unless he has his hands above his head and operates all the puppets from sort of down below. Mr. Punch um, has a very distinctive, hey, squeaky voice like this, <laughs> which is done by actually they have... Um, like kind of like in like a reed in a wind instrument. They have like a, one of those that you have on a string in their mouths. And it's kind of like a kazoo effect. And that's how you get the proper Mr. Punch noise. And it said, you're not a proper professor of Punch and Judy until you've swallowed your swazzle once. <laughs> the swazzle <laughs> being the thing that makes the Mr. Punch voice. It was hugely popular and has remained popular say, since the 1600s. It was for many years... Um, when I was growing up, it was very much a, a staple of um, a seaside town attraction. Mm -hmm. And um, even, even to this day, I mean, where I live, um, up the local sort of village green every year, the Boy Scouts have an annual fete. And there's always a Punch and Judy show. Yeah, when I was, I was, I saw a couple, actually. I saw one in London that was obviously being done kind of for tourists as a, a sort mm -hmm. of, you know, come see the British thing. But then I was in York as well, which is with some friends and was able oh, to yes. see one in a mm. small, that was obviously, you know, it was on some sort of side road, you know, it was just kind of there at a, at a crossroads, not a place the tourists were going to go. But it was, it was fun because it was like, oh, <laughs> you know, it had that moment of like authenticity. It's like, oh, it's still <laughs> around. It's still real. Yeah, That's yeah. great. Yeah. I mean, every, say every summer, the scouts have this fate and, there's always a huge crowd of kids for the Punch and Judy show because it's basically slapstick. A lot of because it's exaggerated characters and exaggerated family. I mean, some Punch and Judy professors say it's kind of like a primitive forerunner of The Simpsons mm -hmm. because the plot is simple and you can improvise and throw in a lot of sort of local and topical gags for Mr. Punch to say. You know, and it kind of um, so it keeps the story stays the same, but it's always updating itself at the same time. Yeah. And you have that balance between sort of the immediate and the topical and the very traditional. At the end of the day, slapstick is just very basically funny and right. kids love it and many, many adults love it as well. <laughs> yep. And that's sort of the tradition of the regular characters. That also explains one part in the story because the character is like, oh, my friend just saw the one that's traveling around here and they have the dog. Um, and so it's sort of like a, a new character that was coming up, just kind of like a new regular character on the Simpsons or something. Well, this is it. Um, there was a big speaking James's time. There was a big craze for having what they called Toby dogs, which was a live animal often with a, a roof on like Elizabethan roof. And sometimes a hat that would actually, you know, sit on the uh, stage often and um, interact with the puppets. Or actually some, some very well-trained ones would go around and carry a little uh, collection box around the crowd. Oh, wow. 
That's amazing. But you know, Schumann, no, if you have a dog, you will always you will help attract an audience, a cute dog. <laughs> but that should help explain a little bit when we get to that part, because we actually, just so you know when you're listening, when it first comes up, it's actually a dream that the character is having about an odd Punch and Judy show that he's watching. Um, and then he goes and actually sees a real one. But I figured Americans ought to know at least a little bit of the background for that so that they make well, sense. This is it. once you, you know that, it's so good. It's yeah, because so Mr. Punch, you can remember, is a murderer. And in the traditional stories, he's often stalked by a ghost yeah. and eventually the devil. And that, I think, plays very heavily into the into the James story. But there's also another ghostly connection. Um, in 1931, James wrote an essay called Ghosts, Treat Them Gently, uh, where he talked about his favorite ghost stories and the writing of ghost stories. And it does begin by saying, what first interested me in ghosts? This I can tell you quite definitely. In my childhood, I chanced to see a toy Punch and Judy set with figures cut out in cardboard. One of these was the ghost. It was a tall figure, habited in white with a naturally long and narrow head, also surrounded with a white and a dismal visage. <laughs> Upon this, my conceptions of a ghost were based, and for years it permeated my dreams. So this could, this could be... Quite, very much a story that was born of James's own nightmares. Oh, that's wonderful. Good. Even more glad I picked this one out. <laughs> Good. Well, Jim, thanks so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. And I hope everybody else appreciates the background. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So let's get to the story. James published this one in 1913, which means that it's technically not a Victorian ghost story. But oddly enough, if you still look up Victorian Christmas ghost stories, people still list them among their favorite quote-unquote Victorian writers. But whatever. Whoever said history was about the truth. Light a candle, grab some mulled wine, sit back, and enjoy the story of a disappearance and an appearance. The letters which I now publish were sent to me recently by a person who knows me to be interested in ghost stories. There is no doubt about their authenticity. The paper on which they are written, the ink, and the whole external aspect put their date beyond the reach of question. The only point which they do not make clear is the identity of the writer. He signs with initials only, and as none of the envelopes of the letters are preserved, the surname of his correspondent, obviously a married brother, is as obscure as his own. No further preliminary explanation is needed, I think. Luckily, the first letter supplies all that could be expected. Letter 1. Great Chris Hall, December 22, 1837. My dear Robert, it is with great regret for the enjoyment I am losing, and for a reason which you will deplore equally with myself, that I write to inform you that I am unable to join your circle for this Christmas. But you will agree with me that it is unavoidable when I say that I have within these few hours received a letter from Mrs. Hunt, to the effect that our Uncle Henry has suddenly and mysteriously disappeared, and begging me to go down there immediately and join the search that is being made for him. Now, little as I, or you either, I think, have ever seen of Uncle, I naturally feel that this is not a request that can be regarded lightly, and accordingly I propose to go to his town by this afternoon's mail, reaching it late in the evening. I shall not go to the rectory, but put up at the king's head, and to which you may address letters. Now I enclose a small draft, which you will please make use of for the benefit of the young people. 
I shall write you daily, supposing me to be detained more than a single day, what goes on. And you may be sure, should the business be cleared up in time to permit of my coming to the manor after all, I shall present myself. I have but a few minutes at disposal, with cordial greetings to you all, and many regrets, believe me. Your affectionate brother, W.R. Letter 2. King's Head, December 23rd, 1837. My dear Robert, in the first place, there is as yet no news of Uncle H., and I think you may finally dismiss any idea, I won't say hope, that I might, after all, turn up for Christmas. However, my thoughts will be with you, and you have my best wishes for a really festive day. Please mind that none of my nephews or nieces expand any fraction of their guineas on presents for me. Since I got here, I have been blaming myself for taking this affair of Uncle H. too easily. From what people here say, I gather that there is very little hope that he can still be alive. But whether it is accident or design that carried him off, I cannot judge. The facts are these. On Friday the 19th, he went as usual shortly before 5 o'clock to read evening prayers at the church. And when they were over, the clerk brought him a message, in response to which he set off to pay a visit to a sick person at an outlying cottage the better part of two miles away. He paid the visit and started on his return journey at about half past six. That is the last that is known of him. The people here are very much grieved at his loss. He had been here many years, as you know, and though, as you also know, he was not the most uh, genial of men and had more than a little of the martinet in his composition, he seems to have been active in good works and unsparing of trouble to himself. Poor Mrs. Hunt, who has been his housekeeper ever since she left Woodley, is quite overcome. It seems like the end of the world to her. I am glad that I did not entertain the idea of taking quarters at the rectory, and I have declined several kindly offers of hospitality from people in the place, preferring, as I do, to be independent, and finding myself very comfortable here. You will, of course, wish to know what has been done in the way of inquiry and search. First, nothing was to be expected from investigation at the rectory, and to be brief, nothing has transpired. I asked Mrs. Hunt, as others had done before, whether there was either any unfavorable symptom in her master, such as might portend a sudden stroke or attack of illness, or whether he had ever had reason to apprehend any such thing. But both she and also his medical man were clear that this was not the case. He was quite in his usual health. In the second place, naturally, ponds and streams have been dragged, and fields in the neighborhood which he is known to have visited last have been searched, without result. I have myself talked to the parish clerk and, more important, have been to the house where he paid his visit. There can be no question of any foul play on these people's part. The one man in the house is ill in bed and very weak. The wife and the children, of course, could do nothing themselves, nor is there the shadow of a probability that they or any of them should have agreed to decoy poor Uncle H out in order that he might be attacked on the way back. They had told what they knew to several other inquirers already, but the woman repeated it to me. 
The rector was looking just as usual. He wasn't very long with the sick man. He ain't, she said, like somewhat has a gift in prayer. But there, if we was all that way, however would the chapel people get their living? He left some money when he went away, and one of the children saw him cross the stile into the next field. He was dressed as he always was, wore his bands, I gather he is nearly the last man remaining who does so, at any rate in this district. You see I am putting down everything. The fact is, I have nothing else to do, having brought no business papers with me. And moreover, it serves to clear my own mind and may suggest points which have been overlooked. So I shall continue to write all that passes, even to conversations if need be. You may read or not as you please, but pray keep the letters. I have another reason for writing so fully, but it is not a very tangible one. You may ask if I have myself made any search in the fields near the cottage. Something a great deal has been done by others, as I mentioned, but I hope to go over the ground tomorrow. Bow Street has now been informed and will send down by tonight's coach, but I do not think they will make much of the job. There's no snow, which might have helped us. The fields are all grass. Of course, I was on the qui vive for any indication today, both going and returning, but there was a thick mist on the way back, and I was not in trim for wondering about unknown pastures, especially on an evening when bushes looked like men, and a cow lowing in the distance might have been the last trump. I assure you, if Uncle Henry had stepped out from among the trees in a little copse which borders the path at one place, carrying his head under his arm, I should have been very little more uncomfortable than I was. To tell you the truth, I was rather expecting something of the kind. But I must drop my pen for the moment. Mr. Lucas, the curate, is announced. Later. Mr. Lucas has been and gone, and there is not much beyond the decencies of ordinary sentiment to be got from him. I concede that he has given up any idea that the rector can be alive, and that, so far as he can be, he is truly sorry. I can also discern that even in a more emotional person than Mr. Lucas, Uncle Henry was not likely to inspire strong attachment. Besides Mr. Lucas, I have had another visitor in the shape of my boniface, mine host of the King's Head, who came to see whether I had everything I wished, and who really requires the pen of a bows to do him justice. He was very solemn and weighty at first. Well, sir, he said, I suppose we must bow our head beneath the blow, as my poor wife had used to say. So far as I can gather, there's been neither hide nor yet here of our late respected incumbent centred out as yet. Not that he was what the scripture terms a hairy man in any sense of the word. I said as well as I could that I suppose not, but couldn't help adding that I had heard he was sometimes a little difficult to deal with. Mr. Bowman looked at me sharply for a moment, and then passed in a flash from solemn sympathy to impassioned declamation. When I think of the language, he said, that man see fit to employ to me in this here parlor over no more a matter than a cask of beer, such a thing as I told him might happen any day of the week to a man with a family, though as it turned out he was quite under a mistake, and that I knew at the time only I was shocked to hear him. I couldn't lay my tongue to the right expression. He stopped abruptly and eyed me with some embarrassment. I only said, dear me, I'm sorry to hear you had any little differences, I suppose my uncle will be a good deal missed in the parish? Mr. Bowman drew a long breath. Ah, yes, 
Your uncle. You'll understand me when I say for the moment it had slipped my remembrance that he was a relative. And, and natural enough, I must say as it should. For as you bearing any resemblance to, to him, the notion of any such a thing is clean ridiculous. All the same, I've borrowed in my mind you'll be among the first to feel, I'm sure, as I should have abstained my lips, or rather I should not have abstained my lips with no such reflections. I assured him that I quite understood, and was going to have asked him some further questions, but he was called away to see after some business. By the way, you need not take it into your head that he has anything to fear from the inquiry into poor Uncle Henry's disappearance, though no doubt in the watches of the night it will occur to him that I think he has, and I may expect explanations tomorrow. I must close this letter. It has to go by the late coach. Letter 3, December 25th, 1837. My dear Robert, this is a curious letter to be writing on Christmas Day. And yet, after all, there is nothing much in it. Or there may be. You shall be the judge. At least, nothing decisive. The Bow Street men practically say that they have no clue. The length of time and the weather conditions have made all tracks so faint as to be quite useless. Nothing that belonged to the dead man, I'm afraid no other word will do, has been picked up. As I expected, Mr Bowman was uneasy in his mind this morning. Quite early I heard him holding forth in a very distinct voice, purposely so, I thought, to the Bow Street officers in the bar as to the loss that the town had sustained in their rector, and as to the necessity of leaving no stone unturned. He was very great on this phrase, in order to come at the truth. I suspect him of being an orator of repute at convivial meetings. When I was at breakfast, he came to wait on me, and took an opportunity, when handing a muffin, to say, in a low tone, "'I hope, sir,' You recognise, as my feelings towards your relative is not actuated by any taint of what you might call malignity. You can leave the room, Eliza. I will see the gentleman as all he requires with my own hands. I ask your pardon, sir, but you must be well aware a man is not always master of himself, and when that man has been hurt in his mind by the application of expressions which I will go so far as to say had not ought to have been made use of, his voice was rising all this time and his face growing redder. No, sir, and here, if you will permit of it, I should like to explain to you in a very few words the exact state of the bone of contention. This cask, I might more truly call it a firkin of beer, I felt it was time to interpose and said that I did not see that it would help us very much to go into that matter in detail. Mr Bowman acquiesced, and resumed more calmly. Well, sir, I'll bow to your ruling, and as you say, be that here or be it there, it don't contribute a great deal, perhaps, to the present question. All I wish you to understand in is that I am prepared, as you are yourself, to lend every hand to the business we have afore us. And, as I took the opportunity to say as much to the officers, of three quarters of an hour ago, to leave no stone unturned, as may throw even a spark of light on this painful matter. 
In fact, Mr. Bowman did accompany us on our exploration. But though I am sure his genuine wish was to be helpful, I am afraid he did not contribute to the serious side of it. He appeared to be under the impression that we were likely to meet either Uncle Henry or the person responsible for his disappearance walking about the fields, and did a great deal of shading his eyes with his hand and calling our attention by pointing with his stick to distant cattle and laborers. He had several long conversations with old women whom we met, and was very strict and severe in his manner, but on each occasion returned to our party saying, well, I find she didn't seem to have no connection with this sad affair. I think you may take it from me, sir, as there's little or no light to be looked on from that quarter. Not without she's keeping back something intentional. We gained no appreciable result, as I told you at starting. The Bow Street men have left the town, whether for London or not, I am not sure. This evening I had the company in the shape of a bagman, a smartish fellow, he knew what was going forward, but though he's been on the roads for some days about here, he had nothing. This evening I had the company in the shape of a bagman, a smartish fellow. He knew what was going forward, but though he has been on the roads for some days about here, he had nothing to tell of suspicious characters, tramps, wandering sailors, or gypsies. He was very full of a capital Punch and Judy show he had seen this same day at the next town over, and had asked if it had been here yet and advise me by no means to miss it if it does come. The best punch and the best Toby dog, he said he had ever come across. Toby dogs, you know, are the last new thing in the shows. I have only seen one myself, but before long, all the men will have them. Now why, you will want to know, do I trouble you to write all this to you? I am obliged to do it, because it has something to do with another absurd trifle, as you will inevitably say, which in my present state of rather unquiet fancy, nothing more perhaps, I have to put down. It is a dream, sir, which I am going to record, and I must say it is one of the oddest I have had. Is there anything in it beyond the bagman's talk and Uncle Henry's disappearance could have suggested? You, I repeat, shall judge. I am not in a sufficiently cool and judicial frame to do so. It began with what I can only describe as a pulling aside of curtains, and I found myself seated in a place. I don't know whether indoors or out. There were people, only a few, on either side of me, but I did not recognize them, or indeed think much about them. They never spoke, but so far as I remember, were all grave and pale-faced and looked fixedly before them. Facing me there was a Punch and Judy show, perhaps rather larger than the ordinary ones, painted with black figures on a reddish-yellow ground. Behind it, and on each side, was only darkness, but in front there was a sufficiency of light. I was strung up to a high degree of expectation and listened every moment to hear the panpipes and the rudetoot toot. Instead of that, there came suddenly an enormous, I can use no other word, an enormous single toll of a bell. I don't know how far off, somewhere behind, the little curtain flew up and the drama began. I believe someone once tried to rewrite Punch as a serious tragedy, but whoever he may have been, this performance would have suited him exactly. There was something satanic about the hero. He varied his methods of attack. For some of his victims, he lay in wait. And to see his horrible face, it was a yellowish-white, I may remark, peering around the wings made me think of the vampire in Fuseli's foul sketch. To others, he was polite and carnying, particularly to the unfortunate alien who can only say Shalabala. Though what Punch said I never could catch. But with all of them, I came to dread the moment of death. 
the crack of the stick on their skulls, which in the ordinary way delights me, had here a crushing sound as if the bone was giving way, and the victims quivered and kicked as they lay. The baby, it sounds more ridiculous as I go on, the baby I am sure was alive. Punch wrung its neck, and if the choke or squeak which it gave were not real, I know nothing of reality. The stage got perceptibly darker as each crime was consummated, and at last there was one murder which was done quite in the dark so that I could see nothing of the victim, and took some time to effect. It was accompanied by hard breathing and horrid muffled sounds, and after it, Punch came and sat on the footboard and fanned himself and looked at his shoes, which were bloody, and hung his head on one side, and sniggered in so deadly a fashion that I saw some of those beside me cover their faces, and I would gladly have done the same. But in the meantime, the scene behind Punch was clearing, and showed not the usual house front, but something more ambitious. A grove of trees and the gentle slope of a hill, with a very natural, in fact, I should say a real moon shining on it. Over this there rose slowly an object which I soon perceived to be a human figure, with something peculiar about the head. What I was unable at first to see, it did not stand on its feet, but began creeping or dragging itself across the middle distance towards Punch, who still sat back to it. And by this time, I may remark, though it did not occur to me at the moment, that all pretense of this being a puppet show had vanished. Punch was still Punch, it is true, but, like the others, was in some sense a live creature, and both moved themselves at their own will. When I next glanced at him, he was sitting in malignant reflection. But in another instant, something seemed to attract his attention, and he first sat up sharply, and then turned round, and evidently caught sight of the person that was approaching him, and was in fact now very near. Then, indeed, did he show unmistakable signs of terror. Catching up his stick, he rushed towards the woods, only just eluding the arm of his pursuer, which was suddenly flung out to intercept him. It was with a revulsion which I cannot easily express that I now saw more or less clearly what this pursuer was like. He was a sturdy figure, clad in black, and, as I thought, wearing bands. His head was covered with a whitish bag. The chase which now began lasted I do not know how long, now among the trees, now along the slope of the field, sometimes both figures disappearing wholly for a few seconds, and only some uncertain sounds letting one know that they were still afoot. At length there came a moment when Punch, evidently exhausted, staggered in from the left and threw himself down among the trees. His pursuer was not long after him, and came looking uncertainly from side to side. Then, catching sight of the figure on the ground, he too threw himself down. His back was turned to the audience. With a swift motion, twitched the covering from his head, and thrust his face into that of Punch. Everything on the instant grew dark. There was one long, loud, shuddering scream, and I awoke to find myself looking straight into the face of what in all the world do you think but a large owl, which was seated on my windowsill immediately opposite my bedfoot, holding up its wings like two shrouded arms. I caught the fierce glance of its yellow eyes, and then it was gone. I heard the single enormous bell again, very likely as you're saying to yourself, the church clock, but I do not think so, and then I was brought awake. All this, I may say, happened within the last half hour. There was no probability of my getting to sleep again, so I got up, put on clothes enough to keep me warm, and am riding this rigmarole in the first hours of Christmas Day. Have I left out anything? Yes, there was no Toby Dog, and the names over the front of the Punch and Judy booth were Kidman and Gallop, which were certainly not what the bagman told me to look out for. By this time, I feel a little more as if I could sleep, so this shall be sealed and wafered. Letter 4 December 26, 1837 
My dear Robert, all is over. The body's been found. I don't make excuses for not having sent off my news by last night's mail, for the simple reason that I was incapable of putting pen to paper. The events that attended the discovery bewildered me so completely that I needed what I could get of a night's rest to enable me to face the situation at all. Now I can give you my journal of the day, certainly the strangest Christmas day that ever I spent or am likely to spend. The first incident was not very serious. Mr. Bowman had, I think, been keeping Christmas Eve and was a little inclined to be captious. At least he was not on foot very early, and to judge from what I could hear, neither men or maids could do anything to please him. The latter were certainly reduced to tears, nor am I sure that Mr. Bowman succeeded in preserving a manly composure. At any rate, when I came downstairs, it was in a broken voice that he wished me the compliments of the season, and a little later on, when he paid his visit of ceremony at breakfast, he was far from cheerful, even Byronic, I might almost say, in his outlook on life. I don't know, he said, if you think with me, sir, but every Christmas as comes around the world seems a hollower thing to me. Why, take an example now from what lays under my own eye. There's my servant Eliza, been with me now for going on fifteen years. I thought I could have placed my confidence in Eliza, but yet this very morning, Christmas morning, too, of all the blessed days of the year, with the bells a-ringin' and, and all like that, I say this very morning, had it not been for Providence watching over us all, that girl would have put, indeed, I may go so far to say, put the cheese on your breakfast table. He saw I was about to speak and waved his hand at me. It's all very well for you to say, yes, Mr. Bowman, but you took away the cheese and locked it up in the cupboard, which I did, and have the key here, or if not the actual key, one very much about the same size. That's true enough, sir, but what do you think is the effect of that action on me? Why, it's no exaggeration for me to say that the ground is cut from under my feet. And yet, when I said as much to Eliza, not nasty, mind you, but just firm-like, what was my return? Oh, she says. Well, she says, there wasn't no bones broke, I suppose. Well, sir, it hurt me. That's all I can say. It hurt me, and I don't like to think of it now. There was an ominous pause here, in which I ventured to say something like, Yes, very trying and then asked at what hour the church service was to be. Eleven o'clock, Mr. Bowman said with a heavy sigh. Ah, you won't have no such discourse from poor Mr. Lucas as what you would have done from our late rector. Him and me may have had our little differences, and did do, more's the pity. I could see that a powerful effort was needed to keep him off the vexed question of the cast of beer, but he made it. But I will say this that a better preacher, nor yet one to stand faster by his rights, or what he considered to be his rights. However, that's not the question now. I, for one, never said under. Some might say, was he an eloquent man? And to that my answer would be, well, there you've a better right perhaps to speak of your own uncle than what I have. Others might ask, did he keep a hold of his congregation? And there again I should reply, that depends. But as I say, yes, Eliza, my girl, I'm coming. Eleven o'clock, sir, and you inquire for the king's head pew? I believe Eliza had been very near the door and shall consider it in my veil. The next episode was church. I felt Mr. Lucas had a difficult task in doing justice to Christmas sentiments and also to the feeling of disquiet and regret which, whatever Mr. Bowman might say, was clearly prevalent. 
I do not think he rose to the occasion. I was uncomfortable. The organ wolved. You know what I mean. The wind died. Twice in the Christmas hymn. In the tenor bell. I suppose, owing to some negligence on the part of the ringers, kept sounding faintly about once in a minute during the sermon. The clerk sent up a man to see to it, but he seemed unable to do much. I was glad when it was over. There was an odd incident, too, before the service. I went in rather early and came upon two men carrying the parish briar back to its place under the tower. From what I overheard them saying, it appeared that it had been put out by mistake by someone who was not there. I also saw a clerk busy folding a moth-eaten veil pal, not a sight for Christmas Day. I dined soon after this, and then feeling disinclined to go out, took my seat by the fire in the parlor with the last number of Pickwick, which I had been saving for some days. I thought I could be sure of keeping awake over this, but I turned out as bad as our friend Smith. I suppose it was a half past two when I was aroused by a piercing whistle and a laughing and talking voices outside in the marketplace. It was a punch and Judy. I had no doubt it was the one that my bagman had seen. I was half delighted, half not, the latter because my unpleasant dream came back to me so vividly. But anyhow, I determined to see it through, and I sent my Eliza out with a crown piece to the performers and a request that they would face my window if they could manage it. The show was a very smart new one. The names of the proprietors, I need hardly tell you, were Italian, Foresta, and Calpigi. The Toby Dog was there, as I had been led to expect. All the town turned out, but did not obstruct my view, for I was at the large first-floor window and not ten yards away. The play began on the stroke of a quarter to three by the church clock. Certainly it was very good, and I was soon relieved to find that the disgust my dream had given me for Punch's onslaughts on his ill-starred visitors was only transient. I laughed at the demise of the turncock, the foreigner, the beetle, and even the baby. The only drawback was the Toby dog's developing a tendency to howl in the wrong place. Something had occurred, I suppose, to upset him, and something considerable, for I forget exactly at what point he gave a most lamentable cry leapt off the footboard, and shot away across the marketplace and down a side street. There was a stage wait, but only a brief one. I suppose the men decided that it was no good going after them, and that he was likely to turn up again at night. We went on. Punch dealt faithfully with Judy, and in fact with all comers. And then came the moment when the gallows was erected, and the great scene with Mr. Ketch was to be enacted. It was now that something happened, of which I can certainly not yet see the import fully. You have witnessed an execution, and know what the criminal's head looks like with the cap on. If you're like me, you never wish to think of it again, and I do not willingly remind you of it. It was just such a head as that, that I, from my somewhat higher post, saw in the inside of the show box. But at first the audience didn't see it. I expected it to emerge into their view, but instead of that there slowly rose for a few seconds an uncovered face, with an expression of terror on it, of which I have never imagined the like. It seemed as if the man, whoever he was, was being forcibly lifted, with his arms somehow pinioned or held back, towards the little gibbet on the stage. I could just see the night-capped head behind him. Then there was a cry and a crash. 
The whole show box fell over backwards. Kicking legs were seen among the ruins, and then two figures, as some said, I can only answer for one, were visibly running at top speed across the square and disappearing in a lane which leads to the fields. Of course, everybody gave chase. I followed, but the pace was killing, and very few were in, literally, at the death. It happened in a chalk pit. The man went over the edge quite blindly and broke his neck. They searched everywhere for the other, till it occurred to me to ask whether he had ever left the marketplace. At first, everyone was sure that he had, but when we came to look, he was there, under the shadow box, dead, too. In the chalk pit it was that poor Uncle Henry's body was found, with the sack over the head, the throat horribly mangled. It was a peak corner of the sack sticking out of the soil that attracted attention. I cannot bring myself to write in greater detail. I forgot to say, the men's real names were Kidman and Gallup. I feel sure I've heard them, but no one here seems to know anything about them. I'm coming to you as soon as I can after the funeral. I must tell you when we meet what I think of it all. I hope you enjoyed it. That's one of my favorite M.R. James tales, so to do it this way was a blast. If you want more, all of his stories are online, and you can find plenty of print copies as well. I've got links at weirdchristmas.com in the show notes. So first, a huge thank you to everyone who read for us this year, and links to their various sites and social media accounts are all in the show notes. You heard from Brian Carlton, Zaya Grace, Tessa Jansen, Dustin Perry, who some of you may know from Ghost Hunters, Helen Forte, Chantel Joy from All Things Christmas, which is a wonderful website you should definitely check out. Old Man Freak Boy of Hey You Kids, Get Off My Lawn, a name that's probably familiar by now. Ossipago, uh, an account whose name comes from a wonderful book by Gene Wolfe that everyone should hunt down. Todd Killian of the Christmas Clatter Podcast and Fred Bitter. And thanks once again to Jim Moon of the Hypnagoria Podcast for giving us some background. He and his wife also do a podcast called The Commentary Club, where they do a bit of talking and riffing MST style about odd and cult films. And go check out Hypnagoria.com. He's got a really cool digital advent calendar set up there, which I thought was a really clever idea. So check it before he changes things away from that again. And now here's the part where I beg. If you're still feeling a touch of holiday generosity, you can help me out in a few ways. To straight up just hand me some cash, you can buy me a virtual coffee or a $3 donation at ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. That's ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. You can even buy multiple coffees if you're so inclined. I've also got a Patreon site that's still in its early stages. For 2 bucks a month, you'll get access to a year-round podcast I'm starting about other holidays, but still with Christmas content, too. I'm also mailing out actual reproduction postcards, the strangest vintage ones I share on social media, and there's some other goodies on there as well. Patreon.com slash weirdchristmas. Links to these are all at weirdchristmas.com, too. And finally, if cash isn't your thing, maybe you could leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Helps me get a bit more exposure on search results. And if you send me a note to tell me you've done it, I'll mail you a totally disturbing postcard. Just DM me on social media or email at weirdxmas at gmail.com. The season's not over yet. If it weren't for viruses and other distractions, these shows would all be out already. But instead, we're keeping Christmas going through Twelfth Night. 
In fact, the next show will be all about Christmas in the Middle Ages, where Twelfth Night and Epiphany were actually much bigger deals than December 25th. But with that teaser, it's time for me to finally go take some more cold medicine. So, until, until next time, don't let Santa stuff you into his bulging, sweaty sack. <laughs>